Welcome to episode 316 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Another conversation about the law today. Yeah. Let's do it. But, but in a different kind of way. Actually, I'm very excited about this. I thought maybe you put this on our calendar just for me, because we're going to be talking about the law, but Christian liberty within the law. What does that mean? And I have a feeling that we'll get to things like what is inside of that practically and how many times can we reference Martin Luther and maybe a little bunion as well. So all of that I think is coming because we've done some Christian Liberty episodes before and somebody might be thinking, well, you've covered this topic, but I would say to you, listener, loved one, was that the definitive episode? And to that, I would say, yes, it was, but this is going to be something slightly different than that. So we got more to say on Christian Liberty. That's, That's coming true. up, right? It is. And you know, this is a topic, I think, particularly in reformed circles, kind of post-reformed pubcast, post-reformed pub, that is a perennial issue that we should come back to frequently because uh, a lot of us discovered Christian liberty as sort of a thing when we came out of whatever evangelical context we were in and discovered reformed theology. We realized there is a lot more freedom in Christ than we recognized. But along with that, sometimes I think tends to come in a tendency to abuse our Christian liberty. And yes, there is such a thing. Christian liberty is not an absolute liberty. So we'll, we'll get to all of that, I'm sure. But Jesse, I'm going to flip the script here, and I'm going to say that we've got to affirm some things. we got to deny some things. <laughs> and I'm going to ask you to pick which we do first. How dare you, sir? How dare you? That was beautiful. Let's do affirmations. I'm going to affirm with another book. And I think this is probably a book I'm very late to the game on, but it was a gift to me recently. And uh, like, I don't mean that metaphorically, though I suppose figuratively, it was also a great gift to read this little thing. It's this really little slender tome and it's entitled A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 by W. Philip Keller. Oh, yeah. And I'm just really enjoying this. It's a Zondervan book and it's maybe the kind of thing that it kind of comes uh, in a like small hardcover it looks like kind of the a book that you would gift to somebody and i kind of judged it like that but this is a really beautiful little reflection on psalm 23 that of course has all this rich theology in it but it is written of course from the perspective of a shepherd and i'm just realizing although I sh i'm ashamed to say this i'm really just realizing how little i thought i understood about sheep and how this gentleman just goes through just a lovely unpacking of all these little nuances without sometimes when you read something like this, it goes a little bit too far. This doesn't yeah. go too far. I think yeah. it really is just a proper reflection on what it means to care for sheep and how this passage really, if we're kind of grown up in an urban setting or very far and separated from this kind of activity, there's just so much that would have been known in the culture that would have been understood in terms of personalities of sheep and the general care for them and how to water them and feed them and guide a flock that just like goes right over our heads. So yeah. it's nice to have something that make you kind of slow down a little bit and appreciate some of the different kind of perspectives of this psalm. So, uh, Shepherd looks at Psalm twenty three by W. Philip Keller. I think it originally came out uh, several reprintings, like in the seventies. Yeah. So it's a really nice little book. Yeah, I haven't read it, but I've heard enough people quoting it and sermons on Psalm twenty three and other related passages about the Good Shepherd uh, that I feel like I probably have read most of it through that. But it would be good to pick it up and read the whole thing. 
Um, I think so many times you can go too far in being overly dependent on historical context in understanding the Bible. You know, we, we affirm that uh, the Bible is inspired and God has given us everything we need within the Bible to understand it. It's its own inspired interpreter. But that doesn't mean that the background is useful. So you, you can go too far, but you also cannot go far enough. So yeah, I think books like that, that look at things and help you understand the context and the historical, or in this case, zoological backgrounds, uh, the, are, are just a good thing for understanding the Bible, which is always good. Yeah, it's it been enlightening because again, it's clear that of course in that passage that God through the power of the Holy Spirit is bringing upon David a particular point of view and perspective. And he's there's a lot that I think can kind of just move past us because we just take for granted that we understand the metaphor. And I guess the challenge of this book is you probably don't understand it as well as you think you yeah. do. And so there's been a lot of things I've never really processed before that have been contained within these pages. And the great thing about this book, if you're thinking, man, another book from these guys for the love. Here's the thing. This thing is really tiny. So it's really great to like just pick it up and use it devotionally. You could read through the whole thing in one sitting for sure. But it's just nice to kind of get this different perspective. And yeah, there's a lot. There's a whole chapter in Restoring My Soul where he talks about a cast sheep. And I had no idea that it was so easy for a sheep to fall on their backs and not be able to get up. Yeah. And he just unpacks that with such lovely detail and appreciation for the animal that you think, yeah. I'm definitely a sheep. It's a, it's a bit of a humbling book because you're kind yeah. of like, yeah, every every time you, you see basically how sheep have really no natural defenses, how they're helpless, how they can die because they inadvertently fall down and yeah. their weight shifts and their legs are just in the air and they can die that you think, wow, this is uh, who I am. This is how God sees me without, without him. We are really, truly contingent beings. So it's been super fun and super humbling and super incredible. So Check that out. Yeah. Yeah. What What are you affirming? Well, I was going to affirm something different, but I'm going to pivot. I'm going to call an audible. Pivot. Uh, I'm going to affirm memorizing the scripture. And this is not something that's new, but it's something that I've been, uh, I think because I've, I've had less discretionary time and needed uh, physically just needed to sleep later because I have a infant who sometimes keeps me awake late at night. Um, I haven't had as much time to work on Bible memorization, but I've started as Augie has been sleeping better. I've started to work on that again. And I think it just is, a, it's just a discipline that we really need to get. And the reason this is an audible and it came up is because one of the, one of the passages that I, I memorized and I'm working on kind of re-solidifying is actually Psalm 23. And one of the things that I've, I, I've sort of observed as I memorized it is that the 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 psalm and what phrases are associated with each other seems to strike me differently when I kind of think through the whole psalm as a whole versus when I look at it verse by verse, the way that the verses are broken up. So, um, <clears throat> you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lead, lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Uh, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Like those are three, three leadings right? That all kind of run right in a row. We tend to, to put like some of that other stuff later in the Psalm, right? He, you know, when, when we talk about, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And then we say, even though he, I, I walk through the valley of the shadow of, of death, we separate that out in our minds because the verses separate them out. So we see a transition between he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, well, if we actually think about the psalm as a whole, 
leading me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake is in parallel with even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death. So it it's often the case that God leads us into dark, dangerous places, but he leads us and guides us and protects us through those. And sometimes that protection doesn't mean he stops us from being hurt, but he's always with us, right? I will fear no evil for you are with me. So I just think when you, when you memorize passages of scripture, you become less beholden to the particular verse numbering schema that we use in our English Bibles. Um, you become less beholden to paragraph breaks because your brain is processing in a, a different way as a whole. So I, not only would I, I affirm memorizing scripture, sort of individual verses or shorter passages, but do the hard work of memorizing large portions of scripture too. And it will, it will, autom- it will pay dividends, right? It, it just is a good exercise. But this recommendation you had of this book reminded me of how how much memorizing Psalm 23 has made the text more alive to me than it has been just reading it off the page. Not that there's obviously nothing wrong with reading it off the page. That's a good thing for us to do. Um, but when you memorize it, I think you get a different, it gets, it kind of like it's integrated into yourself more than if you're reading it externally, like it's actually inside you, which is why the Bible says to meditate on, on God's word day and night. So that's my affirmation and I'm sticking to it. There you go. That was, that's quality. Of course. I mean, we can't say we, it's, it is the commandment of God that we might dwell on his word that meditate on it day and night. And part of that of course is in its memorization. I like this and I, I totally hear what you're saying because if you've ever tried to memorize something, especially something that of some length, what you discover, especially in like the space repetition. So you sit down and you work on it and then you come back to it. And generally it's in the coming back to it that your mind right. has to process again not just the order of the words, but what those words were. And that is totally different than reading. Yep. So there's been plenty of passages that I've had the blessing to memorize. And I found that they become richer or deeper or take on a whole different meaning because I'm having to recall what the words were in the order. And now I'm suddenly thinking about why are these the words that are being used here? Yep. And what do these words all mean together? Because now I'm having to reconstruct them, so to speak, in my mind from memory. So all of that is great. And I was you beat me to it because I was going to say, if you're kind of person that's been memorizing for some time, and we've been big proponents of Scripture Typer as an mm-hmm. app, if you're looking for something, that's great. Uh, in addition to that, I do love the idea of memorizing large chunks. So several years ago, a brother kind of came alongside of me and gave the challenge of memorizing Philippians, which we did together. That is just such a fruitful experience. Not only is a lot of still really by God's grace, like impounded or just like embedded in my mind. But it was this process of going through these large statements of Paul, these sweeping pieces of the narrative of what he's writing in these letters all together, where like the themes are being put together and drawn out and they're just swirling around in your mind and they're getting stronger with each repetition. And like you said, they're no longer compartmentalized. We're not just you know pulling out the sound bites of Philippians, but we, it's actually being read and expounded. We would say it out loud to each other as a way of testing our skills and abilities and honing each other in our memorization. And to hear again, like this letter read almost in its entirety in the way that it was meant to be received it's just something totally different. So we've gotten used to reading and then, you know, of course, proof texting, which is nothing necessarily wrong with, but it, we sometimes fail to see the forest for the trees when we do it that way. So large chunks of memorization, you can do it. It really can be done. And so I think it's just a lovely gift that God gives this church that he puts together the scriptures for us to have in our hand, in our pockets, on our phones, 
And then of course in our minds, it's yeah. still, there's just no replacement for it. There's nothing like it. So we haven't tried it before. Yeah. Let uh, Tony's affirmation be the thing maybe that propels you forward. That, just do it. Find, in fact, find a couple of people and do it together. Yeah. Like set up some, uh, some kind of group, you know, whatever the equivalent of the book club is for memorization, memorization club, memory yep. club, memory club. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes people feel like memorizing a passage of some sort of work of literature is the same as just reading it in your mind. So they think of, I've memorized it. They think of reciting it as though they were reading it off a page, except they're reading it off of a page that exists in their brain. And memorizing is actually something quite different. And I think with scripture, we affirm that every word of scripture is inspired. And you can go back to our our scripture section of this long thing to talk about the difference between Greek texts and English texts and all that stuff. But every word of scripture is inspired. When you're reading, you naturally skip over certain words. That's just how how reading works. You process sentences usually as a whole, even if you're even if you're sub-vocalizing word, you know, each word as you read, you still are only processing chunks of text as a whole. Well, when you memorize the text, you're forced, just as Jesse said, you're forced to not only consider the whole context and the whole content, but you're forced to consider each word in relation to each other word and every word that you've memorized or you haven't truly memorized it. So I, I really think that processing scripture by way of memorization is a command for the Christian. And I think it flows logically out of our conviction that every word of scripture is inspired and every word of scripture is profitable for equipping the man of God for the service of God. So there's a number of ways you can do it. Um, you know, scripture typer is great. It's very automatic. It has spaced repetition built into it. There's a, a an app that I'm using right now called Verses. Um, you could use something like Obsidian Note Taking, and they have a spaced repetition module you can install, and then you just plop your verses in there, and then you it's integrated into your notes database. I mean, a lot of the things we've been talking about over the past several years, you could do old school physical flashcards. I mean, you could get a partner. There's all sorts of ways to accomplish this. But if you haven't taken time to memorize it, I memorized the entire book of Jude, um, which is a short book, and, but it's also a book I didn't understand very well. And I feel like I understand that book a lot better than I used to because I've, I couldn't recite it for you from memory now, but I, I was memorizing it when I was going to be preaching through it over a summer that I had a couple opportunities to preach. And it really it improved my preaching. It's improved my prayer life because I can recall scriptural phrases that I've memorized um, much easier than, than I would otherwise. So... There's really no downside to it. And if you think you can't memorize, I was riding in the car with my wife and I'm not sure why, but my phone, I don't know if you've ever had this happen. Sometimes my phone connects to the Bluetooth in the car and and pulls like an, an album up from Apple Music that I haven't listened to in decades. And it pulled up the 40 Acres album from Cademan's Call, which I probably have not listened to a song from that album <laughs> in 20 years. And that's not even an exaggeration, probably 20 years since I've listened to a song in that album. And I remembered every single word of it. And I would be willing to bet that most people would be able to sing if they had the music, they'd be able to sing most songs that they were really familiar with when they were in, you know, 20 years ago in their twenties, when music was the really big thing for them. You can memorize things. You just, you just don't practice it. So if you think you can't, you're probably wrong. Um, and you should do it. So just get out there and do it. Just do it. That was yep. a great advertisement right there. 
Jesse purposely waited for me to take a drink of my scotch before he said that. So Jesse, what are you denying today? I will keep this short and sweet, but it has a really big reach, I think. So I'm denying against, maybe not for the first time, the Catholic understanding of grace, which I think sometimes evangelicals and maybe even reform folks, we sometimes get this twisted or confused because we even hear Catholics speak about grace, being saved by grace. But just a reminder again this week of how different that is in the life and practical workings of the devout Catholic in that grace is basically this means that God gives us his injection in the Catholic view by which to do these good works. So it's like, right. it's, you know, like getting, I don't know, I suppose like getting an energy drink or something and, and consuming this thing and then having all this, you know, sugar high to go out and do these things, but you still have to do all of these good works. Yeah. It's the grace that allows you to do these good works, but there are good works that you still have to accomplish. And again, it just drew my mind back to some conversations I had even recently with Mormons and how it's really not that far off from the Mormon perspective of you're saved after everything you can do. Right. And I just thought, wow, these things are actually on, they may not be touching, but they're on parallel tracks. Yeah. And so when we say saved by grace, and even a Catholic says to you, you I definitely believe in being saved by grace. It's amazing how different our origin point is. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's important to remember that. And so I'm denying against this idea that being saved by grace somehow means you are just saved by giving a new, in kind of a new, I don't know, like a new sense of energy or purpose or yeah. wherewithal to go out and do good works. What we're saying is, no, that's not it at all. It's in fact, you come, it's not because you elevate yourself to a place of deserving poor, come forward with your empty hands. It's that because of God's great mercy through Jesus Christ, he saves you in this gracious act. And that saving is final and complete. And there is no more good work left to do in the sense of it being meritorious, but there is new good works to do out of a love and enjoyment for our Savior. And that's very different than the Catholic perspective. So maybe this is an oldie but goodie. I don't know if we've talked about it exactly like that before, but I'm denying against this faulty understanding of grace. I feel like the last time we talked about it was when you said that grace was injected and we had to clarify it. <laughs> we did do a whole episode on Roman Catholicism. Uh, we did. It's way deep in the back catalog, so probably when we get done with this series, we may have to revisit that. Um, but yeah, and, and this, I think that goes for things like Federal Vision Theology, New Paul, yep. Paul Theology, where where Arminianism, I mean, for that matter, it's Scott Clark just is doing a whole series on um, the Canons of Dort. And one of the things that he really lands on is that the Arminian Remonstrance, and there's a distinction between classic Arminianism and Wesleyan Arminianism. You could think of Wesleyan Arminianism as more like evangelical Arminianism, which is what most of our Arminian brothers and sisters are. It's not that there's not problems. It's not that some of the criticisms are not valid. They definitely are. But classical Arminianism, remonstrant Arminianism, which is actually making a resurgence with people like Leighton Flowers, um, it's basically just covenantal. uh, It's a covenantal form of Roman Catholicism is what it is. And so when, when you have a system that visualizes and understands sin as a sickness or as some sort of uh, frailty or weakness within humanity, then the answer is some kind of medicine. And that's that's what the Roman Catholic system treats grace as it is. It's a medicine that empowers you. It heals you. It restores you, which is true. But it's not that it restores you in order to then be able to accomplish what's necessary to obtain salvation. It restores you entirely. It's a it's a resurrection medicine versus just a rehabilitation medicine. So I'm all about that. I'm all about that. I know that Reformation Sunday was last week, and we should have been nailing theses to doors then. But let's do it now. 
Let's do it. Uh, listen, I mean, I have to, I think, say by contractual obligation isn't every Lord's Day Reformation Sunday. It's true. It's true. And yeah, also it's, no it's Lord's Day should be Reformation Sunday if you also <laughs> want to get technical. <laughs> well, somewhere it must be. Well, that's the thing, though, is like, you know, we talk about celebrating that day and at least some way drawing our minds back to what God has done to bring a purity back into the gospel that we might have greater fidelity to the scriptures in both our practice and also in our expounding of what the scriptures teach us. And that is an ongoing thing. We have to practice that in our lives. We have to practice that in our churches. This is not to say that there is like some great challenge, which we must meet head on in every church where everybody who's listening to this attends. I'm just saying it still is a practice that we ought to try to be getting closer and closer to the scriptures and making ourselves subservient and submitting to them, letting them read us. We've talked about that as well. And I think actually we're probably going to get to, I'm getting ahead of ourselves. We're going to get to some of that stuff, but again, what are you denying against? So I feel like I'm going to just really make a lot of people angry right now. Uh, probably including Jesse. So I'm denying against the Chronicles of Narnia, but I'm doing it in a very particular way. So I've been listening on audiobook to the various Chronicles of Narnia books, and I want to acknowledge upfront that not everybody would take this same approach as me, and I think that's okay. But we have to understand what C.S. Lewis was doing with Narnia, because I think most people read it as sort of a strict allegory, and that's not really what he was going what he was going for. So I want to read a few quotes from him. So this is from uh, I'll put all the I'll, I'll actually put links in the show notes for this. Um, this is from an article. Uh, I don't know the title of the article, but it, it quotes a letter from C.S. Lewis to a young girl, and he calls these stories supposed stories, supposal stories, and he says, "quote." You are mistaken when you think that everything in the book, and he puts this in scare quotes, represents something in the world. Things do that in the Pilgrim's Progress, but I'm not writing in that way. I did not say to myself, let us represent Jesus as he really is in our world by a lion in Narnia. I said, let us suppose that there were a land like Narnia and that the Son of God, as he became a man in our world, became a lion there. And then imagine what would happen. If you think about it, you'll see that is quite a different thing. And then in an article, uh, which is an excerpt from Lewis Marcos, A to Z with C.S. Lewis, um, he writes about Aslan. He says, according to his creator, meaning C.S. Lewis, Aslan is not an allegory for Christ, but the Christ of Narnia. The distinction is vital. Were Aslan only an allegory, a mere stand-in for the hero of the gospel, he would not engage the reader as he does. In fact, as Lewis explained, Aslan is what the second person of the Trinity might have been like had he been incarnated in a magical world of talking animals and living trees. So Aslan is, does not represent Jesus in Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan actually is Jesus in the Chronicles of Narnia. And I don't have the quote in front of me because I haven't gotten that far yet in the books. And maybe I'll write something on this at some point. Maybe this sounds like a good ETS article or something. But Aslan actually says in the art, in the, the books, I think he says to one of the Pevensey's children, he says, you know me in the other world by a different name. And he kind of implies in this other world, you know me as Jesus. And the reason that I say this is there's this big controversy right now going on about the chosen and this whole clip where he says, I'm the law of Moses. And evangelicals are going crazy about how Jesus is misrepresented in this. And I already made the point that like, well, Jesus is already misrepresented in it. 
in visual form. So we should be upset about that already. And then there are any number of other times in the the show already where they've put words into Jesus's mouth that not only were not what he said, according to the Bible, but also don't really represent Jesus properly. So they're not up in arms about those, but all of a sudden this is the one. As I've listened to, I'm listening in chronological order. As I've listened to the first three books of the Chronicles of Narnia, um, so the first three in chronological uh, in chronological order are uh, the magician's nephew, and then the Lion Witch in the Wardrobe, and now I've finished the horse and his boy. There's some weird, weird theology going on in some of these books about who Jesus is and what he does and what he stands for. Um, the books came out, I don't know, like 70 years ago, 80 years ago. So spoiler alert, I guess, if you've never read them. But for example, there's one scene in um, the prince or in the um, horse and his boy where Aslan as a lion rushes up and he like scratches the back of this girl who's fleeing from her country. And then at the end of the book, it's revealed that Aslan did this because he wanted her to understand the pain she had inflicted in a commensurate fashion on her mother's servant or something. She drugged her servant and then the servant got blamed after she ran away and got 10 lashes or something on the back. That's a weird theology to put in on Jesus. Like that, that's, I I don't think that you can justify that Jesus does that from what we have in the Bible. Um, You know, the, the famous example in, in what line, which in the wardrobe is that uh, there's very much a, um, Christus Victor, but sort of like the fish hook theory where the devil thinks he's winning, but actually the, the, you know, Jesus tricked him and sort of deceived him into thinking that, you know, this one thing would happen. Um, that's, that's the atonement theology that's presented in the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. So I just want us to be cautious. I'm not saying don't, obviously, I'm not saying don't watch, read, listen to the Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. There are second commandment implications for how he describes Aslan, especially since he thinks he's describing Jesus as a lion. Um, All of that aside, though, we have to be careful to understand that although Lewis wasn't writing theology, like, like theology as a discipline, in the writing of these books, it still represents a theological articulation beyond just like the weirdness of the last battle. And maybe he's a universalist, but also maybe not like there's weirdness there, but how he presents the character of Jesus and the actions of Jesus in this book and in all of the books is kind of squirrely. So just be aware of that. Um, like in the horse and the, and his boy, there's one scene where Aslan he says like, I am he, or I don't know the exact phrasing, but he repeats it three different ways. And each way appears to represent one of the persons of the Trinity. So like one time he says, it's like deep and pervades everything. One side, one time he says that it's like bright and cheery. And then another time it's like a whisper. So it's clearly meant to represent like the different kind of personages of the Trinity. But like Jesus wouldn't be doing that. The son of God wouldn't be doing that. That would be each person and, and God the Father is a person in this story. So I just say all that, again, not to say don't read the Chronicles of Narnia, don't enjoy the Chronicles of Narnia. That's not what I'm saying. Um, recognize that Lewis is putting forward theology, even if he may not have necessarily realized the theology he was putting forward, which I think is probably fair to say. There's a theology there, and we have to be aware of that and careful lest we kind of appropriate that. I've heard a lot of pastors appropriate elements of Aslan as examples of who Jesus is. And I would be fearful that people would go back to those books and think 
my pastor endorsed this picture of Jesus. And so, of course, Jesus is going to give us this sort of like recommensurate punitive punishment to show us how much harm we've done. That's not at all the Jesus of the Bible. So that's that's all I have to say about that, Uncle Forrest Gump style. <laughs> I'm kind of ranting. I've been thinking about this a lot. I texted Jesse halfway through the week and I was like, man, the horse and his boy has some weird stuff in it. It does. Yeah, it does. I, I actually think there's not anything too controversial what you've said there. Uh, for myself, I have a pretty agnostic view towards, uh, no pun intended, towards the Chronicles of Narnia. Like, I, I enjoy them, but I always perceive them exactly as you stated them. I, I think we've taken that and made it too much of an allegory on our own. I actually think they, when they originally published, they were never intended, nor were they advertised. Right. He never made that point of view clear in either the writing itself or in how he described the writing. And again, remember that C.S. Lewis has a lot of wonderful things to say. He's also predominantly coming from it at, from a th philosophical perspective, not theological perspective mm -hmm. per se. So there's a lot in there where it's a lovely story with some really interesting themes yeah. that I think do help us to explore perhaps as we can sift them through the scriptures, these theological concepts, but it did. And I appreciate the quote that you use there, which is really good from him. You know, if you want something that's like a pure allegory, read Pilgrim's Progress. Even right. there, there's a lot right. that one could argue is still just meant to be provocative as an intellectual exercise in trying to discern theology as opposed to being a strict retelling yeah. or a strict representation in every nuance and facet of some kind of theological principle. So it's just read it for what it is on the face. It's yeah. a really amazing story with a lot of great theological principles, but you're right. It's a very derivative exercise if you're going to say it's an, an allegory, it can be one only in the most derivative sense. Right. And by that point, it ceases to be an allegory, of course. Yeah. yeah. And there are some really beautiful elements of Aslan, particularly, that are absolutely biblical and, and really magnify who Jesus is. Like the one that comes yes. to mind is there's this scene in The Magician's Nephew where the the witch like smashes Aslan in the face with like a basically like a an I-beam two by four part of like a light stand. And it Aslan doesn't even notice it. And his power is so great that he doesn't even notice being smashed in the face with like this big metal bar. So there, there's elements of the book that absolutely ring true, but we have to be discerning because there are really squirrely things that are presented. And remember, this is not, this isn't uh, an allegory where the symbolism is symbolism, right? This is actually supposed to be Jesus right. in there. So it's not that we're saying Jesus, you know, he's not saying Jesus helps us understand the injuries we've done you know, and he's representing it this way. He's actually saying Jesus repaid this character in the story by inflicting damage on her so that she would know the damage she had been done. Um, I don't know that I can out of hand say Jesus never does anything like that. Um, I, I think there probably are times where like we have slandered people and then we are subject to slander and we may be subject to slander so that we can learn what it feels like. But this sort of like eye for an eye thing that goes on in this scene just made me feel kind of gross about the picture of Jesus he's presenting. So again, you're reasonable people read it or don't read it, but compare it to the scriptures and recognize this isn't just an allegory. We have to take Lewis at his word. This is actually Jesus he's presenting. So we have to hold him to that standard, not to some, we, we have to hold him to the same standard we're holding the chosen is kind of the main point. They're presenting Jesus. They're putting Jesus, they're putting words in Jesus' mouth that at the very least they believe are representative of who he 
is. That's the argument to say, well, he never said that, but he is the fulfillment of the law of Jesus. Therefore, this is something he could have said and it would have been fine. That's the same standard we need to hold Lewis to when he puts words into Aslan, who is Jesus, into that mouth. We have to hold him to that standard. So be reasonable people compared to the scripture. Enjoy the stories, but but just be discerning about it. Yeah, I'm with you in that. I mean, it almost sounds like you're saying you have the liberty to oh, engage man. those stories as you see fit, but to do so in a way that's discerning, that that liberty grants you the ability to process that information, but to do so with a keen eye toward what the scriptures say about that liberty and about your ability to pursue it. Am I off base here? No, man, you're free to be <laughs> correct on that one. <laughs> oh man, just layers. It's like liberty inception. We've already started yes. here. So that is the bulk of uh, what's going to be the rest of our time is conversing about this idea of law and I would say Christian liberty or liberty of the Christian or freedom of the Christian. And I love this concept. I love this topic because yeah. I think it actually doesn't get too much play. And I think what happens is you end up like, it just ends up being polemic or polarizing in most of the conversation. There's got to be some place where either this thing is a real quantity and we ought to embrace it and understand what it means, or we have to just throw it out altogether. And yeah. so I think, of course, we should start where every good reform person may begin. And that is, you know, Luther famously wrote in the freedom of the Christian, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all subject to all. Yes. And maybe we will never get better. That might be the best part of this whole discussion is just that quote right there. But it struck me in thinking about how we even start this idea of conversation about Christian liberty, because it's, it's this broad freedom that I would say God is granting to his people in every age from numerous spiritual evils and to spiritual goods. And of course, like the Westminster Confession has a lot to say about that. I'm sure we're going to get to that. But here's where I think we should start the conversation. As I understand it, in the context of everything we've been processing about this kind of systematic approach to theology, and then its practical implications in our lives, and how we actually live this out, what it means to be free in the way that Luther spoke, and yet bound in some way to the law that's appropriate within the scope of that freedom— Christian liberty is being delivered from spiritual enslavement that carries this legal guilt and a punitive curse to a situation of freedom in order to serve God and then enjoy God. Yes. And so I want to even start the conversation with this idea, everything she is talking about should in some way come back to enjoying God and what he's given us within the scope of living out a life that has strong fidelity and a great focus on piety, but never losing the enjoyment of God and the things that he has given us to legitimately enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important to frame it in that way. And I, I don't think that I've thought about it in that way before, but when you think about reform theology, right, there's, there's two major reform documents that most people go to, and it's the Westminster Larger or Shorter Catechism, and there's the the Heidelberg Catechism, and they both start in slightly different places. The Westminster Catechisms start in this idea that everything that man does, and it specifically has in view man as called and redeemed by God, right? It's not man simpliciter, it's the Christian man. And the chief end of all men, but especially Christian men, is to glorify God and to enjoy him. So it doesn't make sense that later on down in the system, we would somehow somehow not do that, right? Because then the next question right. in the shorter catechism, at least, is how do we know how to do that? When the answer is, well, God's told us in the scriptures. That's the rule of faith. And I think Christian liberty discussions take one of two extremes, right? 
there's the first extreme, which is a, a practical and sometimes explicit form of uh, antinomianism, right? So New Covenant theology, for example, is a, a theological system that explicitly says Christian liberty is that we are no longer bound by God's moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments. We're no longer bound by the Ten Commandments. We're only bound by the law of love, which Christ gives us in the New Testament. Now, the, criticizing New Covenant theology will be a whole different episode that'll come down the way. That's one form. And that's a, that's a Reformed-ish kind of flavor, right? That's, that's a theology expressed by people within kind of the broader Reformed orbit. People like John Piper, people like Tom Schreiner, um, Stephen Wellam, like the people who are sort of in the new covenant theology realm are within the sort of bigger reformed picture. They're not reformed in a proper sense, but they're in this sort of lowercase r reformed world. The other side of it almost feels like Christian liberty means we're free to follow really, really particular specific laws. Like Christian right. liberty is a freedom to obey not only the law of God, but somehow there's additional laws that seem to be accumulated onto it. Um, I, I, I'm careful to even say this name because I know some people will freak out, but people like John MacArthur or Paul Washer, sometimes in their preaching, you get this impression that they're going beyond what the explicit laws of God say. John MacArthur, for example, would argue that alcohol in any form is not allowed to the Christian. And he goes so far as to argue that in the New Testament era, wine wasn't alcoholic, or it wasn't alcoholic in a sufficient sense to be able to do anything to you. Like you couldn't get a buzz or a drunk or get drunk off of wine in the New Testament, which doesn't make any sense. That's a whole different story. And it's not as though Christian liberty just exists as like the golden middle ground between those two positions, right? Christian liberty is actually an entirely different thing. And the first the first and foremost element of Christian liberty is not that not what we're free to do or not do, although that's a part of it. It's that we're free from sin. Like we're free from death, the devil, and sin. That's Christian liberty. And that I right. think that is the strength of the reformed position is that whatever freedom of the Christian means in terms of what we can and can't do, who can and can't bind our conscience, what law, what old Testament laws are or are not in effect for Christians today, all of those are worthy discussions to have and need to be, need to be hammered out. But all of those flow from the idea that we're no longer bound to God's law as a taskmaster who is condemning us. Right. We're no longer under the curse of the law. We're no longer bound to law as a covenant of works. That is first and foremost what the Bible talks about when it talks about being free from the law or the freedom of a Christian. And that's what the Reformed tradition has picked up to say, we are no longer under a covenant of works. So our first and foremost freedom is that we are now in a covenant of grace uh, in which Jesus Christ has provided all that's necessary for our salvation. Yeah, and there's something that's really great and iconoclastic about that that comes out of that Reformed tradition, which was, of course, pushing back against, in many ways, the sense that there were other things that could bind our conscience. And that's kind of the entry point I'd like to take to go deeper on that, because I don't think you and I have talked about that in this show exactly that way before. And that's, I think, where a lot of the proverbial rubber hits the road. So to keep on our theme of using allegories, I, people have heard me say before, my favorite scene in Pilgrim's Progress is when... Christian is ascending the hill of difficulty and this guy comes running up behind him and just 
beats him up, like drops him on the ground, starts kicking him. And as the guy runs away after just laying him out, he says to his traveling companion, who was that? And the guy goes, that was Moses. Yeah, That's the law. So like, there's this sense in which like, we don't want to, even Bunyan's picking up there, this idea that we don't want to rebind ourselves to something that's not necessary to be bound to again. And the conscience, I think, is so critical to our understanding of that because that's in some way the language we use to orientate ourselves toward what it is that we can and cannot do. So I'd like to get into that because I think we, or maybe just from our own part, have found ourselves bound in different ways that are not quite correct. And so again, if the Reformation is about going back to sola scriptura, that that is going to be the all authority for rule in life, I would add or tack onto that if I could humbly, as well as that what binds the conscience. Yes. And we've kind of danced around that. Sometimes we talk about holy days and not holy days. All of that falls in this bucket of what does the conscience of the Christian, what is it that it can be bound to? And so to me, like the Christian conscience is related to this idea of Christian liberty in that it means if certain subjects are declared sinful by tradition or the world or a weaker brother, this might trigger some, then the person with a strong, clear, good and cleansed conscience need not submit to those things out of necessity. Right. I'm, I'm saying that like very particularly. Yeah. So our conscience stands before God and it should agree with his evaluation of of all things. So we're freed from false demands, from, from impositions like that others might put upon us that even if we feel like they might say, it might seem like that's a good imposition that if it's not, it's not in agreement with God's evaluation of things. It is a false imposition that God has said either is not wrong or commands that God has said are not good. So at the same time, we're free from those demands in order to show love to one another. And so a person with a strong conscience, I think, is encouraged to submit to the moral concerns of a weaker Christian out of compassion for them. Right. And that's why Paul is giving this argument, urging submission in certain circumstances out of a concern for a brother's well-being. But let me throw like an example of at you that I think can be like a flashpoint for some theological discussion. I've heard it said to me by many brothers and sisters whom I love, they give the challenge to me, well, let's say that you know, you're a leader in your church. And you were out for dinner with your spouse and you have a glass of wine with your dinner and somebody from the church comes in and sees you having dinner. Perhaps you don't even realize that they're there and they see you having that alcoholic beverage. And suddenly now they're thinking perhaps that you're not as austere or you're not as pious as you ought to be because you're a leader and here you are consuming alcohol. And the question is, ought you be bound to that person's perception of the wine at your table and what it could potentially mean? Or are we to in some way live differently than that and to focus on how the scriptures would lead us into what is good and chaste behavior when consuming alcohol? Does that question make sense? It does. Yeah. And I think this is actually a really common kind of scenario that people put forward. Um, It always seems to center around alcohol, and I I don't think that's just a distinctively Reformed thing. I think even before I was in, I've always been Reformed theologically as as long as I can remember. Um, But even when I was in Lutheran churches um, or evangelical, just general evangelical churches, this has always been the example is alcohol. Um, Sometimes you hear it said about like tattoos and stuff too, but it's usually alcohol. And I think that scenario is a realistic scenario that can happen. Right, it, you know, you're you're out in the community. You you go out for dinner. You want to have a beer or a glass of wine or a, a nice, you know, nip of scotch or something like that. And someone sees you, 
right? Maybe it's not even a Christian. Maybe it's I've heard right. it posed like, what if what if a member of the community sees you and knows that you're you're the pastor or an elder or a, a participant in the church? I think the problem with that is that the biblical command to submit oneself to the weaker conscience of a brother or sister. First of all, it's a brother or sister in Christ, right? right? We're not talking about unbelievers. We're talking about people who have Christian convictions. So that excludes like, what if what if Joe down the block who knows you're part of a church sees you? That just excludes that altogether. That doesn't mean there's not prudence to be considered in how you conduct yourself in the community, but that's not what, what Paul is talking about when he talks about the weaker brother. He's talking about a brother. That's really key. But the the different discussions in 1 Corinthians and in Romans presuppose that you have knowledge of this person not only being aware of your your um your activities but you're also aware of their potential conviction or potential weakness in that area. And I think that's the other issue too is that the Bible presupposes that this thing you're doing, in Paul's example, it's food sacrificed to idols. In our example, it's the consumption of alcohol. The Bible presupposes that that's an okay thing to do. I mean, that's right. that's part of the, the formulation that Paul is going after, is that the weaker brother is the person who cannot partake of something that is lawful because of their sensitive conscience. And... Sensitive conscience is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's also not necessarily a good thing. Right. We don't want a conscience that's overly sensitive. And what I mean by that is we want a conscience that is fine-tuned by the word of God, that is oriented towards God's law in an appropriate fashion. If I look at God's law and I'm overly sensitive such that I restrict myself from things that are lawful, that's too sensitive of a conscience. If I look at something and God's law restricts me from that thing and I don't restrict myself, then my conscience is not sensitive enough. What we want is a, uh, Hebrews talks about it as the powers of discernment, right? Right, Powers exactly. of discernment that are are developed by constant use. Well, our powers of discernment, our, our sensitivity of conscience has to be regulated by the word of God such that um, there have been times in my life, you know, where... I recognize that it's not a good idea for me to have a beer or to have a scotch, not because I'm an alcoholic, not because I've ever struggled with that, but just because there are times where I recognize like I'm in a frustrated mood or I'm a little bit depressed and I don't ever want to find myself turning to alcohol or anything else, but alcohol is usually the one that's in the front of people's mind, turning to alcohol as a way to deal with my depression or my frustration. So there have been times where I say, I better not have a beer right now because I know that I'm frustrated and I just I just don't want to associate coming home after a frustrating day of work and having a beer. I don't want to associate those two things together. I think that's an appropriate use of my Christian liberty because I'm not saying the law of God forbids me from doing from, from right, having exactly. beer. I'm saying the law of God forbids me from dealing with particular situations by means of alcohol. And that is where I think that we have to be careful. And the Bible presupposes that the stronger brother, the strongest of the brothers, the strongest stance to be in is to be able to partake of all lawful things within the, the boundaries of Christian freedom. Whatever the law allows me, whatever the law permits me, 
I should be allowed, I should be allowed to partake in. The weaker brother right. is the one who cannot partake with full freedom because of their sensitive or overly scrupulous conscious conscience. That's not fine-tuned by the word of God, but it's fine-tuned by something else, whatever that other thing may be. Yeah, in some ways, what God gives us as a gift, like you said, to enjoy him and to enjoy him in the context of new liberty is a garden reinstatement in a microcosmic kind of way. It is going back to enjoying the things that God has given us. I would say not even necessarily with the the caveat of moderation, because that's kind of like right. a secular way of saying, just do all things and they're all things are fine if they're done in the right proportions. This is to say instead that we can do and enjoy these things that God has given us, like you know, alcohol or watching TV or eating a good meal, in so much as they still comport with the scriptures. I don't want people to hear me saying that the conscience isn't bound in any way. It's bound to do or not to do which, that which is explicitly taught or necessarily de- deduced, that is like implicitly taught from the word of God. That's absolutely clear. I'm saying we should get back to that first principle, and it might mean that we really need to analyze why we do certain things. Not to mention that for all the times I've really processed the weaker brother situation, I'm not sure I can ever point to a particular instance where that's actually occurred in my life. Yeah. Not to say that it doesn't, of course. But then beyond that, to your point, I sometimes wonder what Paul is saying here is not, listen, just let the weaker brother be. In many ways, it's saying you don't want the weaker brother. We've all maybe in some ways in our thinking, we are all in a place of weakness. We don't want to be left there. We want to be elevated by good teaching and by godly doctrine and by good practice and by good examples to move outside of that so that we might truly enjoy Christian liberty and freedom. So because I'm in the throes of it, I of course have to quote from Pilgrim's Progress and John Bunyan. I'm in the second part of the book, the second or the part two. And let me just read a a quick paragraph, which is like right at the heart of this. When I read this and I thought, I knew we're going to be talking about this. I was like, my word, this is exactly, I think the kind of conversation that Christians need to have. They need to hear this word. So what you're going to hear is this gentleman called Mr. Greatheart, who's leading Christiana and Mercy through their own pilgrimage, he's talking about a gentleman named Mr. Fearing, who you can discern by the name is maybe not particularly well represented. He says this about him. Yes, yes, said Greatheart. I never had any doubt about Mr. Fearing. He was a man of choice spirit, only he was always kept very low, and that made his life so burdensome to himself and so troublesome to others. He was above many others in being tender about sin. He was also so afraid of doing injuries to others that he often would deny himself of that which was permissible so that he wouldn't offend them. And I was thinking about this idea of making your life burdensome and troublesome because we can inadvertently allow ourselves to be bound in different ways to different people's perceptions outside of what is explicitly or necessarily deduced from the word of God. I think we have to wrestle with that idea of Christian liberty. I think that is like the clarion call for our days, not just about even talking about like the moral versus the ceremonial part of the law, but redefining in a way, and by redefining, I mean, going back to the first principles of the scripture, what does it mean for a Christian to consume alcohol? What does it mean for a Christian to watch movies? What does it mean for a Christian to play games or to enjoy the internet? What does it mean to do these things? And it's just easy and it's easier to throw the baby out with the bathwater yeah. and say, we don't do that stuff. But that's not what Christian liberty means. And it turns then the gospel 
at least from the outside perspective, from the unbeliever, away from this list of do's and don'ts, this laundry list of all these laws and regulations, things you ought not to do, or to know and discern a Christian, which is true in part by just what they don't say or what they don't do or what they do do, or the fact that they're occupied on the Lord's day. And instead it turns it into, what does it mean to enjoy life and to be human in the way that God created us to be in so much that we can still do that in a cursed and fallen world. So I see the Christian liberty as this great redemptive act that God has given us to embrace and to enjoy and to worship him and to be a testimony. But I think myself and many other Christians, we fall down on this yeah. because we get wrapped up in perceptions. We bind ourselves or allow ourselves to be bound in ways that are outside of what it really means to have Christian liberty. Yeah. One of the other things I think, and I'm going to read this passage um, out of 1 Corinthians 8 here that is directly applicable to this. Um, one of the things I think we miss also in the conversations about the weaker brother, the weaker brother is assumed to be wrong. So sometimes we couch right. this in just a difference of opinions, right? So we'll say like, well, and I, I'm not trying to pick on John MacArthur. He's just who's coming to mind. We'll say like, well, John MacArthur just has a difference of opinion in whether or not alcohol is appropriate. That's not the understanding that the scripture has about who the weaker brother is, right? So here's here's Paul writing in... Um, I'm going to start in verse one. I'm just going to read the whole chapter. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So that's the first part. All of us possess knowledge. Knowledge is a real thing, but love is the principle we should be operating on. That's the whole governing principle of this passage. And back to, back to verse two, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there's no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, quote, gods and many, quote, lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things are all things and through whom we exist. So he's saying this is objective reality. There are no such thing as false gods. There's no such thing as idols. They're just pieces of metal. They don't actually have existence. That's reality. That's true knowledge. He goes on in verse 7. He says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through their former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours, this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For right. if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating, sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So the first thing is that, uh, no, Paul is not saying we should become vegetarians because the vegans don't like it when we eat meat. The second thing is in verse seven, the presumption that Paul is starting under is that this is because people hold false theological beliefs that this is even right, necessary, exactly. right? The right. reason that this whole conversation is necessary is because in the Corinthian context, there were Christians out there who still thought Aphrodite was real. She just wasn't the supreme goddess. She just wasn't, she wasn't, uh, she wasn't the Lord of all, right? That's what he's saying. There are some people who still think that although we, those who have knowledge, 
know that the idols are nothing. We know that they're just pieces of metal or wood that are shaped like humans, shaped like figures. We know there's only one God. So these idols are nothing. However, there are some people who are Christians who don't know that, who do not realize that. So if we transport that to what seems to be the the hot button topic of our generation, although we know that alcohol is lawful, there are some who do not have this knowledge. That's what he's saying. Those who do not have those knowledge, i.e. John MacArthur specifically, is, is one of the people that's vocal about this. John MacArthur is the weaker brother because of his ignorance in this matter. That's, that's how we apply this passage. And so the answer that Paul gives us is not to restrict ourselves in an absolute sense, right? It's not even necessarily to restrict ourselves in terms of if I go out for dinner with John MacArthur— not that that would ever happen, but if I were to go out for dinner with John MacArthur, it's not even saying that I'm not allowed to order a glass of wine with my dinner. That's not even what it's saying. What it's saying is that I have to be sensitive to the reality of what my actions might do and might more so might encourage my weaker brother to do. So if I go out for dinner with John MacArthur and I say, hey, John, I'm going to have a, I'm going to have a glass of wine because I think that wine is lawful. And he goes, great, I'll have a glass of wine too, because you think that it's lawful. My response should not be, well, no, then in, in my case, I'm not going to have that wine because I don't want to, I don't want to tempt you. My response should be, wait a second, John, you think that wine is sinful. So why would you have a glass of wine with dinner? Right? It's not to restrict myself unnecessarily. It's to make sure that my actions are working for the good of the one that I'm with. Sometimes that's an education right? If I was out for dinner with John MacArthur and he said, well, I'm going to have a glass of wine, even though I think it's sinful because you seem fine with it. My response should not be to like, well, no, no, then let's not have any wine. It should be, well, let's have a conversation about this. First of all, I don't, I think it's fine for you to have a glass of wine. I don't think that's a sin, but maybe we need to talk about what it is that the Bible actually teaches. Just like Paul might, might say to a, a Corinthian Christian, Hey, yeah, I know you saw me out in the market the other day and I bought bought food from this vendor. And I know that you know that this food came from a, a an idol sacrifice. So let's talk about this, right? I don't want you to think that you should go buy food, sacrifice to idols, because you think those idols are real. So let's actually talk about the presupposition that idols are real. Exactly. That's the application here. And Christian liberty has to be exercised for the good of our brothers and sisters, but has to be exercised. We can't it's not fine. And, and let me just read this from the Westminster Confession, because I think this is, this, is, this is the element. Last time we talked about Christian liberty, we landed hard on the, the Christian's freedom to abstain from something for the benefit of their brothers and sisters. But here's what uh, Westminster Confession, chapter 20, and this is section two says, God alone is the Lord of conscience. He left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it, if matters of faith or worship, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commandments out of a conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. So they have in mind specifically probably the papacy and certain elements of Elizabethan England. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things wrapped up in there, but if you go out for dinner and, and you are told by someone you shouldn't order a beer because that's sinful and you go, okay, yeah. I mean, since you say it's sinful, uh, I'm going to just abstain. And that's because you have all this in your conscience is sensitive when previously it wasn't. That's not a good thing. 
That's that's actually binding your conscience to the commandments of men rather than to the, right. the word of God. That doesn't mean they're necessarily binding your conscience, right? They believe they're applying the word of God to you. So they have not necessarily sinned by simply communicating to you what they think the Bible teaches. They can be wrong about that, but they're not binding your conscience by telling you, I think this is what the law of God says, or that's what the law of God says. That's just a disagreement in what the Bible says. But when you bind your own conscience to what they believe, even though you think the Bible says something different, that's actually a violation of Christian liberty. You're exercising your liberty in an unlawful way where this very same action of abstaining in order to not wound their conscience in a different context may be just fine. I like what you said about really using that as an opportunity for conversation, because that's also where I was going as well. It's, I, I think, I'd like to think it's possible that in this command that's delivered to us through Paul, what we have here is a really strong cry, a command almost as it were, to process Christian liberty together so that we would always be going back to what is the true source of discerning what that liberty looks like into the scriptures instead of we have traditions and maybe they've departed, maybe they were well-intentioned and now they've become super derivative. And in their derivative nature, they now cease to be actual examples of Christian liberty. I think yeah. in some ways that's how far we've come. And it can be, we're picking on alcohol consumption, but it could be consumption of movies, books, a certain style of music, all of these things. I think anybody uh, can pull any of those examples and tease them out and find, you know, that there are these kind of cliches that go along with each of those categories that we say, well, Christians don't do this. So they, they certainly don't listen to that style of music. And I think that's exactly the problem is we ought to always be reforming and going back to what is it that God actually requires from us? Because I'd rather put my first and best efforts and energies into those things rather than some kind of ancillary things. Yeah. Even if I think by doing the ancillary things, somehow I'm serving God. What Paul is basically saying here, and as you've articulated, is you might not be. You might think that you actually are, but you are not. And of course, that does not mean that I need to become the slave of another's conscience, like you yeah. said. And I love like John Calvin, you know, summarizes it really well. And he puts this point by saying that we restrain the exercise of our freedom for the sake of weak believers, which is what we're saying, but not when we are faced with Pharisees who demand that we conform to what is unscriptural. That first of all is not exercise of Christian yeah. liberty. And then secondly, where the gospel is at stake, liberty needs to be exercised. I love this idea because I think that was what in some ways makes, you know, it's just a man, but what makes Calvin and Luther appealing to me is that they pushed a lot. They pushed back. And I think sometimes for the sake of conversation about, to your point with the example of the idols, the thing isn't like, well, listen, I'm just not going to eat this meat. This Let's say like, I don't know, it's like a pot roast from a vendor who sacrificed the meat to idols. And you're like, yeah. man, pot roast is delicious. Like, especially on the Lord's day, like you come back from church, there's like a pot roast that's been cooking. That, that's like a delicious meal. And what better way in some ways after hearing the message and worshiping God through music to come back and have a great meal and to continue worshiping him. And you're right. It's almost like what we're saying here, or what Paul, I guess, is saying is that there's just a disagreement, a lack of understanding about basic first principle facts about idols. The idols don't exist. So like, there's not even a thing to be worried about here or to be right. concerned about because the idol doesn't exist. It's not to say, well, because the person thinks that the idols exist, you should then be subservient to that mistruth right. and reorient your life because that is then the gospel is now at stake because that's not the gospel anymore. And it's actually just not the truth about the reality. So liberty needs to actually to be especially exercised when the gospel gets compromised by some kind of strange, even slightly meritorious, like rule mongering. Yeah. So where the stability of a weak Christian is at stake, then, then we restrain our exercise in liberty. 
But I would actually say we've gone the other way these days. And because people can be very sensitive and there's good reason for that. There's also the sense that, well, I won't go out and consume alcohol in public because somebody somewhere might see me and have some you know, nefarious idea about what right. I'm doing. I want to deny that all day long. Yeah. That actually, that's not the stance we should be taking. And if somebody, to your point, were to come up afterwards and say, hey, I saw you at... I'm going to pick a wild, just a random, like Buffalo Wild Wings. I don't know, or something like that. It was like, man, I could go I, for I saw some you chicken wings. A, yeah. We don't like, have a Buffalo know, Wild Wings here, man. Now you're making me hungry. Oh, sorry. Yeah, they, it is delicious. So you say you're there and let's say like you have a beer or two and I'm laughing with my wife. We're having a good time. And that person comes and confronts me later on and says, listen, I saw that you're having a beer and I think I'm kind of offended by that because I'm not sure that, that was a good example. And that's really what we're saying, right? That like right. somehow I fell down on my exemplification of what it meant to be a Christian. That is a beautiful opportunity to talk about our behaviors and our behaviors in light of what God commands. And that I think is in part what Paul and God himself wants us to wrestle through. That That is in fact this going through the pilgrimage of the Christian life right. is finding the place where our liberty rests and that it gives us great enjoyment of God and great testimony to the gospel without, at the same time, weakening the state of another Christian. But sometimes I think we have to lean into, by having conversation, to understand what that state of the quote-unquote weaker brother is, so that we, as best of God has educated us and opened our eyes, illuminate where God has illuminated us to the blessings and the reality of what it means to have liberty to do things under this idea that for freedom, Christ has set us free. So I just don't think it's like a simple conversation or topic. Like, I think it's something that we need to lean into process and continue to live out. But I guess what I'm really challenged and convicted by is saying, I want to start with the scriptures first, not any kind of man-made convention, not even somebody's perhaps perception. That shouldn't be where we start. That's like a second order effect. Yeah. We should really start with the first order, which is what does God require of us? And I think, as we've said before, that requires us really to be marinated, pickled, whatever metaphor you want to use in the scriptures. When we get that muscle memory, we're more likely, I think, to exercise Christian freedom and to start to discern by the Holy Spirit the lines where those appropriate boundaries may be drawn. So it is a little bit of work in the sense that we have to be dedicated to understanding that. But um, I want to be more Lutheran, not, I just said that weird, Luther-like in <laughs> my ability to make sure that, in other words, let's be truly convicted loved ones about yeah. what God requires us to be truly convicted about, and let's let everything else wash away. Even yeah. if people sometimes take issue with us, let's be able to then lovingly come alongside of them and say, here's why I'm doing the things I'm doing. And if at that moment we find that we need to restrain ourselves because there is a true weakness, then I would say it's appropriate to do so. Right. But to live life in such a way where we become troublesome or burdensome to ourselves because we're trying to make sure that we're upholding some kind of standard according to what everybody else thinks a Christian ought to look like, even our beloved brothers and sisters, that is problematic. And I would say actually does not exemplify the gospel. So where the gospel is at stake, let's exercise true Christian liberty. And maybe let's try to understand what true Christian liberty actually looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I'll close with this example that I think people point to because it's kind of humorous, but it actually was deadly serious. So there's if you can look it up on Wikipedia, it's called the Affairs of the Sausage, which is a very, a very funny way to talk about this. But yes, I love this so much. The, I can't believe we're gonna do this. The Reformation in Switzerland under under Zwingli actually kicked off 
Uh, it's funny because we're not even close to Lent and we're, it sounds like we're getting started for our anti-Lent propaganda here. But it started off because Zwingli um, didn't speak out against some really hungry laborers who ate sausage during Lent. And it wasn't, you know, he went beyond just not speaking out about it. He actively preached that, that, that Lent regulations were not uh, true. So, so this was an example where it was, you know, it was, it was a couple guys who worked in a printing press who ate sausages on the Lent, uh, during Lent and, and had it stopped at that probably wouldn't have been anything, but somebody came and said, you shouldn't do that. And they came to Zwingli and they said, you need to speak against this. And he said, absolutely, I won't, because that's not in the Bible. And that's exactly the kind of situation where, you know, if if Zwingli was going to dinner with a bunch of Roman Catholics during Lent and he wanted to uh, to respect that they had different convictions and he wanted to have an open door for conversation, even Zwingli, even Zwingli probably would not have gone in there and brought like bacon for dinner during Lent. Right. Right. He's not going to go to like the Jewish friend down the, down the road's house and bring like a, a ham sandwich with him for, for dinner. But when the gospel was at stake, when people were being bound by unbiblical laws, he stood up. And I think that's a good rubric for us. When that person comes to you and they spotted you out in the community, it's no longer about your conscious decision to flaunt your liberty and to ignore the struggles of a brother. It's just about who you are and what you do. That's when you have to say, yep, yeah, nope, I'm free to do this. And we need to talk right. a little bit about what Christian liberty is. That's not an excuse to ignore that sometimes it's just not wise and it's not helpful to your brothers and sisters to exercise your liberty in a particular fashion. And we're not free to act in a way that knowingly harms another. Like that's just a basic Christian principle. Yes. But when it comes down to having to regulate your life, what you do when you go out for dinner with your wife, when when presumably you're minding your own business, you're not intending for anyone to see anything out of the ordinary— that now becomes a new rule of faith, which is exactly what the Reformation is saying it can't become. Christian liberty is not freedom from God's law as a rule of faith. It's freedom to do anything that is not contrary to God's law as, as a rule of faith. Now, there are regulative principle conversations and things we could get into on a different show, but when people start telling you you can't do X and that's not spelled out in the law, then that's actually something you should push back against. Yeah, and in fact, one could argue that it's our responsibility to push back, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I think to bookend this, uh, let me say from Luther again, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all subject to all. So I think that is as good a role in the summation. And maybe we've just, of course we started where we began, but I'm hoping that people will think about this. We'll ponder it. We'll consider it and maybe ruminate on it a bit. By the yeah. way, as we close, I just happened to look up because I just thought it'd be interesting. The Affair of the Sausages Wikipedia page is hilarious. It, it has a lot of like the initial detail, but what just made me laugh that was so great I'm is... I'm looking at the same thing. Yeah, one of the two images, you see that on the side, it's just, just smoked sausages. It's just an image of smoked sausages. As, as if, though like, we needed confused. to know what sausages were. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I think in part, that's what makes the, the Affair of Sausages, like it's equally like this grand, it is kind of a grand, almost, I don't want to like be hyperbolic, but kind of like a watershed moment because, you know, basically like the whole response to the whole thing was Luther saying like, listen, Christians are free to fast or not to fast. Like the Bible does not prohibit eating of meat during Lent. 
And it was like just that basic statement. Like, if you can find it, let's talk about it. But you're not going to find it in there because the Bible does not prohibit it. So even this Wikipedia page is kind of like saying, yeah, it was that sausage. That's what they're talking about. Like, this is not like an allegory for something else. The sausage doesn't represent anything else except sausage. And here are what smoked sausages look like. It's it's amazing. I, I just added a citation needed tag to the thing that says smoked sausage. <laughs> I need I need a citation that those are actually smoked sausages. Yeah, that's true. How do we even know they're smoked? Yeah. How do we know they're sausages? Maybe they're dog treats. Maybe they're just pictures of sausages. Maybe they're that's... just pieces of wood painted to look like sausages. We don't know. Maybe are you saying maybe they're deep fake sausages? They are. Maybe they're not even maybe they're I don't know. Maybe they're just not sausages. <laughs> All right, brother. Well, I think we should wrap this up. We're already oh, well past our goodness. time. We're free to do that if we'd like to, because this is our show we and are. we can do what we want. However, uh, we are uh, excited to continue in on this uh, this little series on the law, and then we're going to get into some elements of how do we respond to the law, how do we think about the law in relation to culture. We're coming that up on that quick, uh, and we're just excited because this is this is where the rubber meets the road. Although we can talk about the law in, in sort of these abstract theoretical senses, we also need to realize that the, the law of God and how we apply it is a real thing. So I'm excited to, to chat through this stuff with you. Um, make sure you check out the website. You can go to our website. You can get our whole back catalog. You can also click at the top where it says join, uh, join the Brotherhood. There's a number of ways to do that. Uh, if you are so inclined, you could support us on Patreon. You could join our Telegram channel at uh, t.me slash Reform Brotherhood. Um, there's a whole other host of things you could do. But most of all, we just enjoy that you're listening to the show. That's the best way to support the show is just to listen and let it change you, let it uh, let it push you to the scriptures. And uh, yeah, we like making it. We hope you like listening to it. I just like channeled Les and Tanner on that closing there. But uh, did. it's true. It's true. Yeah, it, this is a great journey that we're all on to become more reformed as we ask the Holy Spirit to do that great work of God in us through what Jesus Christ has accomplished. So we're all in it together. So I, we love that there's a community of others that are listening, that are interacting. So get involved. Join up. All right. Do that. Well, <laughs> until next time, Jesse, <laughs> honor everyone. Love the brotherhood and eat some smoked sausage. What if I'm part of